listeners. I'm Joni B. Cole, host of Author Can I Ask You? For people like me who love books and the stories behind the books, this show gives me the chance to ask authors about what they write and why they write. Plus, I like to throw in a few odd questions just to get to know each author a little bit better as a person. Let's get started and meet today's guest. Today, I welcome Lee Connell, author of the much-acclaimed debut novel, The Party Upstairs. In the book, readers share a single pivotal day in the lives of the two main characters. Martin, the long-serving and much-suffering super of a Tony Manhattan apartment building, and his daughter, Ruby, who recently moved back home after finishing college. Entertainment Weekly writes this about The Party Upstairs. Lee Connell has a keen eye for the grand delusions and small daily hypocrisies of a, quote, classless America, and upstairs, downstairs for the modern age. Hey, Lee, congrats on the mega acclaim for your debut novel. Oh, thank you so much, Joni. Thank you so much for having me. Lee, The Party Upstairs is this funny, sometimes dark story that lets readers see the reality of life in an Upper West Side co-op, rats and all. But what I love is that reality is shared by the super and his daughter, Ruby, who live in the basement of the building. So I was wondering, did your life overlap at all with Ruby's or with her family's circumstances? Yeah, I think the biggest biographical overlap between Ruby and myself is that my dad was a building superintendent on the Upper West Side. And so I grew up in very similar space to Ruby. It was interesting to share this setting with the character. And that was really important to me that I could draw on that base and on that knowledge. You know, then I also had that challenge of stepping back to allow myself to imagine freely within the novel and to let Ruby kind of be her own person. You know, the building itself is such a character in the book. Was your building or were the demands of your building, did they kind of impose as strongly as the demands of this co-op did on Martin? I think that within the context of this novel taking place over a single day, the demands are really at a high pitch, right? And that was part of the fun of writing this book was that over my almost 20 years of experience in that building, I saw a lot of those demands and heard a lot of those demands. And within the novel, I could kind of compress them and speed them up a little bit. Do you remember from childhood any of the most bizarre requests that a tenant had, you know, they imposed on your pop? Yeah, I don't know if this is going to be peak bizarre, but I always think about this one tenant who wanted my dad to come up and massage the haunches of his cat (laughs) while they were out of town. And I have a cat. I love my cat, but that is a very specific demand. That's specific for sure. You mentioned that you made what I think is a really interesting choice to have all the action in this novel unfold in a single day. Can you explain how you came to that decision to make that time frame? Yeah, I guess, you know, I've been writing and I'm still writing a lot of short stories and the novel, just the length of it felt almost like this realm of endless possibility. And I felt like I needed a time constraint or some sort of limitation just to get started with it. And there are several novels that take place over a single day that I really love. And I love the way that it can handle time and play around with flashbacks. So I decided to try it. And I thought, you know, I'll start with this constraint and then I'll probably end up letting it go as the book hopefully grows. But in that early draft, it was really freeing. I think having some limitations helps me imagine almost a little bit more wildly. 
So it ended up being useful. But the constraint of that single day ended up being a really important part of the book's DNA and something that helped focus me when I was writing it. I love this review of the party upstairs in BuzzFeed. Connell creates a microcosm of life on the shit side of the wealth gap in New York City, fills it with absurd, infuriating, and endearing characters, and hilariously skewers privilege that can't or won't recognize privilege. What made you gravitate towards this theme of privilege and that tension between the haves and the have-nots, which I would say rears its ugly head on almost every single page of this novel? I think part of it was growing up in that atmosphere. And I know I said the demands on this day are worse than many days, but definitely growing up it was a kind of relentless sort of just witnessing all the work and needs that my father had to deal with. And I think when I was working on this, I was especially interested in just talking honestly about class and about that income gap. And I felt like I kept reading things where the haves and the have-nots were just sort of symbols, but the actual demands and, and anger there would be kind of absent. So I wanted to really think about that on the page. It's interesting how much of Martin's perspective is framed by this wealth discrepancy between himself and the other occupants of the building, even the occupants that he likes. I was wondering, do you think Martin's almost hyper-awareness of this issue Did it serve him on the job or do you think it's almost more a flaw of his personality? I think that hyper-awareness of class that he carries is almost inevitable in that position. And it's something that he doesn't even totally have the luxury of dispensing with. Like it's such a part of his understanding of his job and managing it. It helps make him actually good at what he does. I think just as an observing person, that's part of who he is and It's hard for me to imagine him separate from that awareness. It's so much a part of his being able to get through with that job and being able to navigate those situations. I love how one of the ways Martin deals with the aggravations of his job is that he meditates. Why did you decide to have Martin be so into meditation? Well, I, like Martin, I'm often trying to meditate or be more in the moment (laughs) and finding that my thoughts go in other directions. So I really enjoyed writing all of his meditation scenes. And I also think there is this sense, like when you're too aware of power discrepancies or things like that, but there's a little bit of this narrative, just stay in the moment, appreciate what you have. And I think that's really important for getting by. But I was also interested in how that attempt to stay in the moment collided with the power differences that Martin keeps facing or witnessing. Lee, you mentioned a few moments ago that you also try to meditate. I was curious, does that help at all with your writing? Meditation and just that effort to sort of stay with the uncertainty of a moment has been really helpful in terms of helping me stay with the uncertainty of the writing process itself. There's just so much mystery in the writing process. And for me, when I plan too much ahead or get too focused on what a manuscript is supposed to do or is going to do, I kind of lose sight of all the interesting, strange things that happen in the moment when I'm writing. So I do feel like a meditation practice serves me in terms of just dropping my own storyline about what I think a character or even a sentence should be doing and just sort of sitting there with the project as it is. I want to switch to Ruby for a little bit. She's a recent graduate of a liberal arts school, and she's also an artist who is totally into dioramas. Why did you make dioramas Ruby's thing as an artist? 
Well, I love dioramas for one. I just think they're so cool. How come? You know, they're like these little miniature worlds that you can't quite enter, but they're strangely immersive. And I was thinking about them a lot when I was working on this novel, in part because I was thinking about the building as a setting and my own memories of it and how even describing it was a little bit like creating a diorama, right? Like there's these background paintings almost, right? These things that I was setting up. And I think dioramas are really interesting way for me to consider memory and narrative and how we set a scene. So when the novel opened, Ruby's trying to find a job specifically at the Museum of Natural History, but it's tough going out there for struggling artists, of course. Your character situation, it made me think about the longstanding debate about the value of a liberal arts education and whether it's even practical in today's world. I wondered if you had any thoughts about that issue. I had a liberal arts education though at a a state school, which was not as expensive as Ruby's. And I value it so much. I'm so grateful for it. So I think that education itself is wonderful. I just had the best time reading everything that I could read, you know, and being exposed to ideas and artists and writers that I wouldn't have found on my own, being taught by professors who had devoted their lives to learning about these artists and writers, you know, it just was really exciting. And I think I needed that space and that time that I got in college to really dig into it. Yeah, I read that you went to Vanderbilt to get your MFA. And I noticed in your acknowledgments for the party upstairs that you include the names of some serious heavy hitter authors like Lori Moore and Kevin Wilson. Can you talk about your writing mentors in terms of what they shared with you that particularly stood out as inspiring or helpful? Yeah, I was so lucky moving to Nashville to get to work with these writers that I just loved their work so much. Um, This is maybe not a writing lesson, but just getting to meet these people in person and getting to know them as just very funny, kind human beings was like a really big eye-opening thing. Just because until that point, I had just lived inside their words, right? So just, I know this sounds almost very obvious, but just to see these writers as human beings (laughs) occupying space and trying to be kind and trying to share their kind of wisdom was a really interesting and cool experience. I think I also learned just the value of being yourself on the page and leaning into that. And it's not that my mentors there gave me that permission exactly, but in some ways they led by example. And I think that that was partially why I could write this novel was that it was something that felt so much a part of me. And just like leaning into the things that I cared about and the things that had shaped how I saw the world was a really valuable lesson. A lot of reviewers have written about your style and your subject matter, but how would you describe yourself on the page? I try not to describe myself on the page too much because I always worry that it'll solidify something in terms of what I work on next, right? Like, I'm like, oh, this is what I do. So this is what I'm going to keep doing. So I don't know. I think I'm probably a little weird on the page. and (laughs) Weird in a good way. Yeah, let's say in in a good way. I want to switch gears and talk about your short fiction. Your first book, Subcortical, is a collection of short stories. And the reviews for that book were through the roof and so well-deserved. I'm curious, aside from a certain word length, of course, what are the prerequisites that you think a short story needs to make so that it feels complete, so that it has an impact on the reader? 
it's interesting because some of those stories in that collection just took me a really long time and I thought they were complete. And then I would go back to them and realize that they were not. One funny thing about short stories to me is that they often don't ever feel totally done. There's some sense of them continuing in the world. But I think I can usually tell they're done when my edits start making them a lot worse. (laughs) There's sort of a point where it almost feels like a heaviness. It's weird to describe it so viscerally, but it's almost like there's a weightiness to it. And it's like I'm writing to a point where the structure doesn't seem to collapse on itself of the story. That's where you know you're just starting to change things for the sake of changing things. Lee, last year, you won a National Endowment Creator Writing Fellowship. And that must have been a very happy day for you when you got that news. How has that support changed your writing life or changed your view of yourself as a writer? That support was so, so helpful during this sort of pandemic time. I'm just really, really grateful for it and for everything that NEA does. It just made me feel like... I wasn't writing into a vacuum, which I think is part of the writing process. There's a stage that I call the vacuum stage where (laughs) it really feels like this maybe will never go anywhere, will never take a shape. And also in this country, the support for the arts can feel really tenuous. So getting that felt like such a gift and such a (laughs) de-vacuuming. De-vacuuming. What did you do when you got the news to celebrate? I think I just sort of laid down and stared at the ceiling for a little while. (laughs) That just sounds like a writer's response, doesn't it? Do you remember when you first got published? What was it and what did it feel like? Um, My first short story that got accepted was a journal called Glimmer Train, which unfortunately does not exist anymore. But it was a great journal. And I was at that point just sort of sending things out through the slush pile. I don't know if you're supposed to call it that or not, but (laughs) it felt very slushy. So it was just very exciting that like a human being had read it, you know, like just that alone was very thrilling. Well, I saw you also had an essay published in Modern Love and you were really young when you had that published. How did that feel? It was very funny. I was really grateful for it and it felt like an unexpected thing. I thought that story was wonderful. It was about your boyfriend at the time and how he decided he's going to live in the woods. Do you happen to know if he's still in the woods or maybe he's still your boyfriend? No, he's not my boyfriend. And I think now he works in tech, (laughs) not in the woods. Well, I think that it was an authentic effort at the time anyway. It was. (laughs) I strongly advise listeners, though, to track down that essay in Modern Love. It's wonderful. Lee, I have one last question for you, which is, if you were to write a six-word memoir, what would it be? Hmm. Um, Inside basement apartments, imagining other floors. (laughs) What do you imagine when you imagine those other floors? You know, I think it depends on what I'm working on at the time, but there's always a lot of pigeons involved, it seems like. Well, maybe pigeons are your creative muse, those and rats. Definitely. You always need a few rats. Well, Lee, I just want to say one more time, I cannot recommend highly enough your book, The Party Upstairs. So I hope everyone gives it a read. And it has been so much fun talking with you. So thank you for this time. Thank you so much, Joni. Thanks for having me again. Listeners. 
If you would like to learn more about Lee, her debut novel, The Party Upstairs, or her much-celebrated short fiction, be sure to check out her website at leeconnell.com. So that's it for this episode of Author, Can I Ask You? Thanks, everybody, for listening. And if you like what you heard, please spread the word and visit me on my website, JoniBCole.com. In the meantime, take care, act civil, and don't be afraid to ask the odd questions.